Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the call. 10 stocks picked by you, two experts, one hour. It is uh, Wednesday, the 28th of February. I had to think about that. Uh, we're at the end of the month, almost at the end of summer, for heaven's sake. Uh, where did that go? Uh, our two experts on the show today, Daniel Tizi from Stock Doctor and Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial. Welcome to both of you guys. In fact, I caught up with Daniel a little earlier. Michael, let me start with you because I was asking Daniel about his thoughts from uh, earnings season thus far. I know your head is spinning at the moment. There's so much to consider. But do you have a takeout? Any sort of particular themes or maybe sort of surprises you've seen? Look, earnings season started off probably stronger um, in terms of the overall numbers and deteriorated as it's gone on. And that's probably pretty usual in that sense. But broadly speaking, the beats versus the misses hasn't been too bad whatsoever. But we're still seeing EPS growth for the market be revised lower. So we've got a situation at the moment where the ASX is trading on a multiple, really quite elevated on a 20-year basis, excluding that weird sort of COVID period. Dividend yields aren't that attractive for the market relative to recent history. Um, yet we've had a, you know, a decent run up in the market over the last sort of six months or so. So, yeah, I mean, the earnings season hasn't been bad. As expected, companies have been pretty reluctant to provide too much forward guidance. But by and large, um, on, a, on a more personal level or a firm level, it's been fairly decent to us. Um, you know, our managed funds coming up to 12 years, we're sort of 14% versus the market 9%. So we're just hoping to get through the last you know, week or a couple of days of reporting season to avoid any bombs. But so far, so good. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll take that as a positive then. Uh, Daniel, as I said, we, we did have a chat this morning, didn't we? But uh, looking at some of the highlights of earnings season, just to Michael's point, that that sort of reluctance, I guess, to give guidance, is that understandable? Has that made your job a little more difficult? Uh, guidance hasn't been a factor since COVID really, Andrew. So mm. it's it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the standard practice these days. No one wants to give expectations a, ahead because they're too afraid of missing them. And we look at companies and the reactions in particular when people do miss guidance and miss expectations, that the reactions are fierce. So uh, this morning we spoke about the fact that people had low expectations for a lot of these cyclicals and the fact that they're hitting them is seeing huge revisions upwards and great trading on the day. Like, you know, look at Reese. I think we called out Reese this morning yesterday. I mean, I can't believe that stock was up, you know, around 18% on, on 2.5% revenue growth. But still, they're beating their expectations. So that there's clearly a risk going forward that companies don't want to set the bar too high. Um, and, you know, when they miss, like perhaps what John's Ling's had as well in, in the last few trading days, they are punished quite severely. So, yeah, absolutely uh, agree with Michael's sentiments. I haven't, I wanted to clap when he was speaking. I haven't heard anyone else be, you know, more realistic on, on the trajectory of earnings and markets. <laughs> Everyone's saying it's been fantastic. It's it's a record season. The US AI story, it's, it's been amazing, but, you know, not too many people are, are sitting in the, the, risk, the risk management space. I think it just might be me and Michael. 
Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's fair enough, but I'm good to see you both so well grounded then. Uh, sets us up for a good show, I hope. Uh, speaking of which, uh, let's uh, take a look at what we're going to uh, be speaking of. And the first five stocks we're going to take a look at are Redix, Liberty Financial, APM Human Services International, SG Fleet Group and Briscoe. Uh, yeah, fairly diverse range there. Perhaps not high on uh, on the list of uh, some stock pickers, but uh, always good to get a bit of diversity. All right, our stock of the day, off the back of uh, earnings season, is Flight Centre, uh, boosting its full year guidance after it flew back into profit in the first half as travel demand soars. Net profit for the six months through to December coming in just shy of 87 million. That's versus a $20 million loss in the prior period and a beat on market expectations. Revenue surging as total transaction values rose 15% to more than $11 billion, with an interim dividend of $0.10 cents a share declared. Uh, when it comes to the outlook, Flight Centre saying the fiscal second half so far was performing in line with expectations, adding that after four years of disruption and then gradual recovery, 2024 is set to be a watershed for travel. Uh, interestingly, though, its shares have been punished somewhat uh, this morning. That's probably after total transaction volumes did miss many analyst expectations there in its report. So let's see what our exports, uh, experts, I should say, think. Uh, Daniel, let's start with you then. What, what did you make of that from Flight Center? Yeah, look, Flight Center always have very busy results, Andrew. It's, it's a little bit of a difficult business to understand, especially from an accounting point of view. So I think you've hit the key you know, headline figures on the head. Uh, overall, it actually was from a headline level, you know, better than expected. Um, the key story with Flight Center is still that you know, that underlying profit margin recovery. So, you know, the business operates on around about a 1% net profit margin and pretty much, I haven't listened to the analyst call, but I can almost guarantee that the, all of the questions would have been about their recovery and trajectory to that 2% target. So th- there's a good story unfolding here. Uh, I'm assuming the market's reaction was perhaps around, like you said, um, that Mr. TTV, which is you know perhaps an unsustainable revenue yield going forward. Um, these are questions we still need to ask and why it's so difficult to analyze this business. Uh, but yeah, look, Flight Center to me, it's all about the margin recovery going forward. We know volumes can be choppy in travel and they do have a very strong presence in corporate travel. And I think it even had a record result in corporate travel as well. But yeah, it's all about that story and the underlying net profit margin here. The upgrade seemed to be driven by cancellation, I think, in, in some of their debt convertible hybrids, which uh, reduced their amortization expense. So not a technically a high quality upgrade, um, but look, you know, company's trajectory uh, is going in the right trajectory for me. Um, but of course, like I mentioned, everything about focus now is on this margin recovery story. Mm. It is a long way back, as we can see from uh, the heady heights uh, back in a pre-COVID. Uh, so, Daniel, what would you be doing with the stock then? Yeah, look, overall, I'd still be happy with a hold. We know that the dilution has come through already from the raising since COVID. So, you know, you just be careful looking at that share price chart. A lot of um, of our uh, members on Stock Doctor have said it looks like there's great recovery still to come. But on an enterprise value basis, I think the business is actually worth more now than it was pre-COVID. So just consider that. But there actually has been opportunities for consolidation and improvement in market share and um, in that corporate travel business as well. So I think the, the future of this company is bright. It's always been a pretty good company. Um, but 
like I said, you're really betting on that margin story here. So happy to hold it. Mm. Uh, let's wait and see how that goes in the second half. Yep. Okay. Michael, are you on board? <laughs> We're not on board Flight Centre. Um, we have sort of partaken in that space through Webjet previously, but looking at this Flight Centre result in particular, as touched upon, it was quite messy because of some of those amortization <laughs> um, one-off type transactions. Um, so people are trying to work out whether it beat or miss, and I think broad consensus is basically in line. Um, this is a company that has been on the recovery path now for a number of years, reinstated the dividends, did manage to eke out a, a guidance upgrade, um, despite the fact it wasn't the highest quality upgrade. Their corporate travel business seems to be you know, doing very, very well. And they have slowly evolved this business model away from their reliance on bricks and mortar. And that continues to come through, but it is very much about the margins. The margin expansion, I think, needs to be more pronounced um, in order to maintain the rally and recovery that we've been seeing um, in recent years. So from my standpoint, happy to go with a hold. The result was okay without being spectacular. Uh, they did, however, point to the fact that January and February um, has been pretty strong and the macro conditions are holding up fairly well, as well as the fact that there has been a, modera uh, a moderation in airline fees, um, which does help boost demand for a lot of their products and bundles, etc. So. Look, there's a bit of a, a mixed bag, I think, in today's number. So that's probably why the market hasn't been overly excited. So as a, as a reference there, the company seeing this year as being a watershed uh, year yeah. for travel. W would you agree with that? And, and how do you place then Flight Centre in the mix of yeah. Webjet, corporate travel and the like? It's hard to say what's going to happen you know, with travel. You look back at 2023, everyone was talking about doomsday scenarios, really high inflation, really high interest rates, mortgage cliffs, these kind of things. And there was a lot of expectation that the consumer was going to get battered and it didn't really play out that way. And it's a, a bit similar again in 2024. There are some people who expect that it's just really a, a lag impact of interest rates and eventually the big buffers that Australia got throughout the COVID, the big cash handouts, which were very elevated relative to the rest of the world, Will continue to be diminished and it could sort of play out in 2024 where the consumer starts to to hurt a lot um, i still think that people will continue to travel there's no doubt that people are placing great emphasis on experiences and maybe maybe cutting back in other areas um, so it's hard to say but looking our preference is webjet just because of their web beds business which is basically a marketplace for travel agents to go and, and purchase bundles and airfares, etc. Um, corporate travels more aligned to the corporate space and that had a pretty tough update recently. So our mm. preference would still be for Webjet in that space. Yep. All right. Okay. That is our stock of the day, Flight Center, a hold from both. Let's get into the stocks as picked by you. The first one being Redox, uh, certainly not one I've covered before. It is, uh, it's picked by Harish, uh, wholesaling of chemicals and plastics and the like, uh, servicing sectors such as crop production, animal health, human nutrition, uh, mining explosives, very diverse, in fact, uh, across uh, some of the industrials there. And um, we're just uh, taking a look. Uh, some of the brokers saying its organic outlook remains strong, uh, suggesting perhaps that M&A could provide another lever for growth there for the company. Michael, is this one you've covered before? Uh, I have covered it. It was a 
much vaunted um, IPO from last year. They took the plunge in what were pretty challenging conditions. Mm. Effectively, a family built business and run business that was looking to make a bit of an exit, but while still remaining involved with the company. Uh, what sort of differentiated this company from a lot of other IPOs that come to market was it was an established business, you know, seeing decent earnings growth, paying a, a decent dividend yield. Uh, so very much an established business, not trading on relatively attractive multiples around sort of market multiples, maybe slightly less. Um, and the company has performed more or less in line with expectations from that IPO without you know, having a, an unbelievable rally or anything along those lines. Um, it's managed to negotiate what will have been quite a difficult time for a product distributor such as this, uh, whereby there's been a lot of inflation in the space. The question is, you're obviously distributor, so you're purchasing from someone to then sell on to another business. And it's how much of those inflationary pressures do you pass on to your customers? You can increase prices, but if you increase prices too much, will they go elsewhere? Will you retain them in the long term? So they've been working their way through the inflation narrative that's been playing out. It does probably seem like the worst is behind the business. And, and so far, uh, they've done fairly well with that. Organic growth seems to be fairly good. There is also a, a very strong balance sheet there, which does give them some ammo up their sleeve to go out and do other acquisitions. But it's a pretty conservative, well-diversified business in terms of its customer base. It's across really the anything from the mining space to health and wellness and nutrition. So yeah, it's not a business that's overly exciting. However, it's been a good business over a long period of time in the private sector. It's now whether or not it can deliver in the public sphere. And, and so far with their first update, I think it was not too bad. Um, I'm going to go hold on it because I don't expect a huge um, price rally, but it's unlikely to fall through the floor either. Okay. Daniel, uh, similarly, have you got onto it since that uh, IPO in the middle of last year? Yeah, Andrew, it's been one I've followed and there's another one in the small cap space DGL group, which has actually had quite a lot of eyes on it, perhaps for the wrong reasons as well. Um, so I've kind of been following these businesses difficult businesses to understand um, and when I opened the annual report yesterday and I saw their, their revenue result I thought geez they might be in a bit of trouble today um, significant decline in their largest segment which I believe is the crop protection business I think their customer revenue was down around 22% there but they did a really good job in other divisions and cost management in particular to lead to a flat profit result so hence the market didn't really move too negatively on them meanwhile you know like I mentioned their PDGL they had no kind of cost protection there and the, and the stock fell 40% on the day. So I think it's a good perhaps contrast for these two businesses and uh, for people to understand the difference between perhaps a larger scale player and their ability to manage costs within the business. So uh, I was actually quite impressed with their result given that volume decline. And the reason why we've had the decline in, in the crop um, uh, the crop volumes and yield is because of the anticipation of the El Nino weather. Obviously, if we're anticipating hotter weather and droughts, you know, that, that's not a condition, um, a weather condition that's conducive to, to planting crops. So um, we've actually had a weather period. So the companies are kind of calling out a much better second half. I'm not sure if that's really in current guidance and in expectations. That, that could be the upside here. But, you know, the, the, the trading result was fine. I mean, it had Revenue down 8%, profits flat, like I mentioned. Return on capital was was still impressive at around 18%. For a, earning, uh, a forward earnings multiple of around 17 times, it does look fully valued. So I, I would agree with Michael, it's probably more of a hold for me. Um, but 
one to keep an eye on. I think it is a pretty good business, and that expansion to the US uh, could help further bring some upside. But you know, I'm not willing to pay for that right now, Andrew. Fair enough. Okay. Let's now uh, move on to Liberty Financial. Well, this one picked by Jonathan. Uh, financial services business uh, in housing, personal finance, commercial motor vehicle, uh, also leasing as well. Uh, looking at its, I think, its last results, margin somewhat compressed there. Uh, brokers noting that uh, funding cost pressures appear to have eased. Daniel, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I'll perhaps keep it a bit quickly. I'll keep it a bit quicker here, Andrew. And I've said this before on the show, but this non-bank lending space, you know, someone is going to make a lot of money out of this sector because they are very bombed out um, and they're super exposed to the economic cycle and interest rates. But at the same time, you know, that they've been bombed out for a reason. That they have very high risk um, in credit risk there. Now, Liberty is actually quite big in the in the brokerage space as well. It seems I'm like not too familiar with the business, but I saw that they had a pretty good income from the brokerage of loans as well. But look, they have 13 over $13 billion in assets that they've lent out and the market cap is about you know, just over a billion dollars. So we know that there's very little kind of margin of error for risk in the equity here. And, and that's probably just why you know, I'm not really interested in these businesses at the moment. But someone will be making a lot of money out of this. I'm just not sure who, and, and I don't think it's going to be me. So I, I'd, I'd personally probably call this a sell just because of the risk you know if we do have that perfect soft landing environment and and reducing interest rates these guys will do well but i'm just not willing to take that risk on personally yep fair enough michael yeah diversified non-bank lender from you know anything from resi mortgages to car loans personal finance their total revenue numbers were not bad on the face of it. Um, they saw a big uplift, but a lot of that was driven by the higher interest rates. Their net interest margins got crunched um, down, you know, I think 30 odd basis points or so. So total revenue was actually pretty flat to slightly lower in the end. Um, there is a lot of competition going on in this space, particularly from the large banks, and it is making life difficult, particularly for not only the banks, but also the non-bank lenders. The other thing that worries me is if you look at the delinquency rates 30 day plus in arrears for non-bank lenders, they've started to really turn up quite quickly. Um, and the, the very, very concerning rate and trajectory there if that was to continue. So there are signs that there are some stress emerging, uh, particularly for non-bank lenders. There has been a big tick up as well for bank lenders, but hasn't been anywhere near as pronounced. Um, and, and the total levels are quite, quite low. So particularly for a lot of these um, type loans, which are high interest, potentially not as well secured, can be a bit of a concern. So from my standpoint, I'm gonna go a sell. Uh, There will be a point to maybe jump in if someone has got the guts to do so and and they get a line of sight as to when the turnaround in interest rates will come, but it's very difficult to predict with any certainty someone to go sell. Yeah, look, you guys are seeing from the saying, Song shed, aren't you really? <laughs> Both looking at this stock saying someone else is going to make some money, not us though. Uh, so a double sell there on Liberty Financial. All right, our third stock is APM Human Services uh, International is a provider of health and human services uh, across uh, many different marketplaces. I think, in fact, it's reporting today. I didn't get across those numbers. However, uh, of uh, interest is that has received a, a takeover offer uh, 
from private equity. I think that offer's just been upped, in fact, but it was a something of a 93% premium given the share price has come off. That was rejected because it was seen as uh, too cheap. Um, it uh, it did uh, has actually, off that back of that result, confirmed a, a big drop in interim profit and has scrapped its dividend at the same time. Lots going on here for APM. Michael, what are your thoughts? Interesting business, not one that I was too familiar with. Um, involved primarily in employment services, although they do have like a health and wellness type arm to them uh, for this particular business that they run on behalf of Bupa. But I think that goes to the point they've got very large contracts from very large corporates or government. So, and they tend to be fairly long-term contracts, which allows for them to you know, deliver pretty decent numbers um, and also you know, some decent stickiness in those contracts as well. They have decent cash conversion improved a lot, um, although you know, the earnings numbers have been pretty mixed over the years. What's really saved investors recently, as you touch upon, is that private equity offer that came from CVC Asia Pacific. Um, it's not typically a business that we would look to invest in. Margins tend to be pretty tight and contract accounting can sometimes be a little bit confusing. Um, so from my standpoint, I'm going to go a sell, um, given the big takeover and the big jump in share prices. I mean, as an investor, you could hold on and hope that another offer comes in over the top. But given the big decline in the share price that you saw there, uh, obviously someone adjudicated that a value had emerged and lobbed an offer. Whether they still think that value is there remains to be seen. Um, so from my standpoint, happy to go a sell, particularly considering that we've been operating in a peak employment environment. It's been very difficult for companies to find and retain staff. Uh, the issue becomes what happens when the employment market starts to loosen a bit, all things become even tougher uh, for a company that really has struggled even in the best of environments. Yeah, as you say, particularly given what's going on at a macro level with the yep. likelihood that that unemployment rate is going to rise. So that certainly makes it tougher, but also certainly since it listed there, share prices come off significantly, you're so saying, in the light of these offers, perhaps now's your chance to get out. Um, so, Daniel, what do you think? Yeah, interesting gap there between the offer price, which is effectively accepted by the company, and I think subject mainly to due diligence risk now, versus uh, the current share price. There's a big gap there for for people who believe this deal will go through. Um, so th- I think that will be something to watch for sure, uh, to see potentially how those those insto traders get in on that. But look, Michael's right with the with just the business in general. I think it floated out of private equity. Uh, in 2021, perhaps a bit of an opp- opportunistic float. Um, it floated with really high expectations and growth, and I believe it was a bit of a roll-up story as well. So, you know, it, it's got a big revenue base, very tight margin, um, and like we've, we've spoken about, had some issues with cost inflation and, and has really never met expectations or guidance since listing. So, if you've been if it, if you've been in it, you'd definitely be very happy with this offer uh, because the trajectory of the company really wasn't going your way and there are risks ahead in the overall employment market. Although I do note, I think a lot of their revenue does come from especially the disability services part as well, which I think should be a little bit more stable. So yeah, bottom line is take this offer, but perhaps wait and see what's going on with, with the deal risk here because the gap between 160 and $2 is you know pretty significant for a short period of time of deal closing. So 
Um, perhaps hold it for now, take a bit off the table if you've done well. Um, but you know, if that gap closes, there's still some upside there to gain. So I'd actually be probably more leaning to a hold here. Oh, okay. All right. You've convinced yourself then. Um, <laughs> you went sell, trim, hold. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. No, but I, it's I see the reason. day for us, Andrew. Yeah, no, 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 that makes sense. Okay. Let's move on now to uh, Fleet Group. Uh, this one picked by uh, Kelly. It's provider of uh, mobility solutions, fleet management essentially for vehicle leasing and also salary packaging services uh, at the same time. Uh, record earnings in the December half. And uh, that's, uh, I think, attributable essentially to the beat on net rental incomes and finance commissions. Daniel, SG Fleet. I was really hoping Michael had the first <laughs> knock at this one because these salary packaging and Novated leasing companies, they're just so difficult to, to understand actually how the business model works and the revenue model works. And SG Fleet, Macmillan, Smart Group, um, you know, they're all just so confusing. And you speak to analysts and you look at how they model the company and really, I, I actually don't think anyone has a, a good idea of what's going on here. But when we listen to what the companies are saying, their conditions are very strong. The availability and supply of vehicles has improved, particularly in the four-wheel drive and ute space, which obviously are very popular vehicles um, for, their, for their target market. And the yield that they're extracting on electric vehicles um, does appear to be quite high and, and that's been a really positive driver for them because they are getting high yields the supply of evs is improving as well and there have been tax incentives as well offered by the government and fringe benefits etc so these seem to be the key reasons why the, the shares are moving higher from you know a valuation point of view their business obviously does rely on a specific part of government regulation so they are at risk and we've seen that threatened in the past it didn't eventuate but that that could really um, destroy a lot of their business. So I think it deserves to trade at a numerically cheap PE and a high yield, which it does. So I'm happy to hold it for now because you are benefiting from those factors. Um, but overall, is this kind of the long-term stock I'd like to own? Probably not. We've owned Macmillan and it's done really well. It's blown the lights out compared to what I thought was possible for the business. And I'd even probably call these businesses across the whole as a bit of a trim and take some profits. Um, but yeah, th that's my view on the company. They do stay cheap for a reason. Okay. Yeah, Michael, how do you look at them? Um, Daniel pointing out it is difficult to analyse. Yeah, he, Daniel covered it pretty well. Yeah. And they are difficult to understand. There's often different components of the business um, and it's hard to get all parts of the business doing well at the same time. There's the overarching regulation. These companies rely heavily on government subsidies in many ways through the tax system, etc. cetera. Um, looking at SG Fleet more specifically, they had a very good year for Nevada leasing. Um, they've obviously seen a normalization in recreational vehicles in recent years after that big sort of um, that period where used cars and new car purchases were going through the roof, particularly around that COVID period when people couldn't leave the country. Um, but look, there's pretty, it's, it's always single digit earnings growth. Um, they're not ultra high growth type businesses. Uh, again, there's lots of contract or relationships that go into generating the revenue for these companies with large corporates or government organizations um, because for a lot of companies the benefits that they're able to provide their staff are done through Novated Leasing for instance um, so yeah from our standpoint quite complex not one that I've ever invested in so I'm going to give that one a wide berth going to go a sell after the recent run-up in price mm. okay all right SG Fleet 
Moving on now to Briscoe, a uh, bit of a look across the ditch. In fact, it is a Kiwi retailer. Uh, it's got a bit of a blend here of uh, physical shop fronts and online shopping channels, uh, office customers, homeware, sporting goods. Uh, some of the names being Briscoe's homeware in uh, New Zealand as well as Rebel Sport, in fact. Um, what, what can you tell us, Michael? Uh, not a business I was familiar with. Um, they've obviously got the distribution rights for mm. Rebel. Uh, Rebel Australia is a different owner in that sense. Basically, it's a company, when you look at the numbers, are actually has done quite well over a number of years. You know, Strong revenue growth, decent earnings growth, decent cash flow growth, return on equity is quite high. And also margins aren't too bad as well for a bricks and mortar retailer. Uh, the question is, again, looking at more from the macro standpoint, what's going to happen with the consumer uh, and whether or not the housing market in the in New Zealand is going to hold up. Well, also watch out the, today because the RBNZ is about to make its really, decision yeah, on interest rates. And there's some <laughs> speculation may even lift rates. Really? Yeah. yeah there, so there you go. And their housing market's been doing it quite tough yeah. um, for, for yeah, 12 months at least now. But this company seems to have held up relatively well. They're still expecting... You know, decent net profits next year, only a, but still a drop, you know, around 5 to 10% drop on this year's figures, mm. which just does point to some of the, the headwinds that might be building in the space. And for that reason, I'm happy to go a sell, not because I think it's a terrible business with a terrible balance sheet. I just am a little bit concerned about that macro environment and would rather focus my attention elsewhere. Yep. Okay. Daniel? Yeah, look, very interesting business, and you know, it it was listed on the Aussie market uh, by Rod Duke, but it's a bit of a question as to why, because I think he still owns eighty percent of the shares, and their primary listing is in New Zealand, so it doesn't even really trade here. Um, but I was very surprised when I took a look at the financials, uh, the trading update for the full year twenty three, to see that you know the business was very resilient, and like Michael said, that the financial results looked actually really good, still maintaining that high net profit margin of ten percent, uh, even though as we know the New Zealand economy has been pretty tough, especially on a consumer level. So I, I was really surprised to see that, but you know we've covered the business really well you just can't really trade it there's, there's no liquidity in the stock so i mean if you're in the stock i'd be asking how you got in it because it doesn't trade uh, but i'd probably be happy to hold it here just because you, you can't really do anything with it andrew so um if it was a much more liquid stock i'd probably keep this more firmly on my watch list because uh, those margins and the level of online sales over 18 percent of sales come from online which is obviously they benefit from given their scale and distribution capabilities it is a good business to follow and Rod Duke's been there since the 80s he's, he's a well-known kind of retail entrepreneur so he's managing that that business very well but yeah it's just the liquidity that really you can't do anything with okay so that uh, that is the uh, result of what we've seen with Briscoe's that uh, as you say it's uh, primarily a a Kiwi business here. Uh, all right, well, let's uh, sum up. In fact, I've got to say that you two have um, lived up to uh, what you said you'd, you'd do. You've been pretty negative. Um, <laughs> no, okay. No, you've been realistic. We said that, didn't we? You are realistic, Daniel. You said that at the top of the show because you've come up with holds and that's the best you've come up with because the others have been sells. Uh, but that's fair enough. Um, that's what we want to hear. All right, so let's sum it up. In fact, our stock of the day was Flight Center. Look, it is a hold from both. Uh, Daniel pointing out uh, that um, underlying profit margins are recovering. A good story unfolding. That's certainly what Flight Center is saying at the same time. Um, Michael largely agreeing, but his preference in that space 
is Webjet. Uh, to the ones as picked by you, the first one being Redix, um, a hold there from Michael uh, saying that, uh, look, um, sort of pretty much in line with expectations, it's uh, its results, uh, certainly since uh, its performance since its IPO uh, last year. Uh, Daniel is only impressed with the result. Uh, he's got a watch on it, but uh, he's, he's going to slap a hold on it, particularly watching what uh, it's a move into the States at this point. Liberty Financial, well, it is a sell from both, uh, talking about the risk there, uh, particularly if uh, interest rates, uh, well, okay, perhaps if interest rates start declining, but at this point, it's pretty risky, uh, particularly also Michael pointing out, given it's, uh, it's a non-bank, uh, its delinquencies are rising. That's certainly one to watch out for. Uh, APN Human Services it is the target of a, a private equity uh, takeover there. It is a sell from both, uh, given it has, um, well, it's been on a rapid decline since it listed, in fact, uh, has received that bump from the takeover offer, earnings mixed, tight margins. So yeah, a sell from both. SG Fleet, difficult business to understand, say both. Um, it is a hold from Daniel, a sell from Michael. And uh, finally, there, Briscoe, a sell from Michael, a hold from Daniel. All right, so let's take a look at how our own uh, high conviction fund is performing. It's picked by our investment committee. The latest episode of that is live here to watch at ausbiz.com. Checking in on the update going into February. Challenger was sold and Santos added. Weightings of CSL and Macquarie were reduced and added to AUB and Kroon Energy. So in terms of its performance, it is up 26% on a kindergarten term basis since its inception in March 2022. So keep sending in your request, keep the call switched on to see what stocks our committee will be looking at next. Also a reminder, our annual subscriber survey is open. You've got until March the 11th to have your say worthwhile because it tells us what you want to hear about and uh, it only takes a few minutes to uh, to fill out and just to sweeten that deal or so we're going to give someone a, man- a managed investment portfolio from MPC Markets worth $5,000, uh, other prizes as well. To uh, find out the details, head to osbiz.co slash survey24. All right, second half of the show, we're going to take a look at MMA Offshore, Weebit Nano, Adriatic Metals, Cobram Estate Olives, and Pepper Money. So let's kick it off with MMA Offshore, picked by Zach. It is a marine services provider, uh, mainly in the Asia-Pacific region, and uh, provides essentially marine and subsea services to, particularly in the energy sector, to uh, form of mining services, I guess you could say. Uh, first half result there was uh, was better. So the analysts, uh, cash from operations up 30%. Uh, management saying second half likely to be similar with significant margin expansion. Daniel, how do you view it? Yeah, the old Mermaid Marine, it's been it had a great recovery since their downturn in, in FY20. And I was really wanted to focus on this segment here, Andrew, just the stark difference and the level of cyclicality in this business. So a few numbers, if I could. FY20, it had utilization of its vessels of around 60%, net loss of $94 million, wrote off a lot of its assets, gearing at 45%, $186 million in net debt. So it was effectively on the brink. And then we had the significant turnaround uh, in oil markets and therefore huge investments into offshore vessels, um, servicing requirements. And now they're making over $60 million a year, you know, great cash flow conversion. They've, they've revalued their assets higher again. And, you know, Famously, the replacement costs of their vessels 
have gone through the roof because there's a shortage of them. So it just kind of shows you where opportunities can come from in this market. They can really come from the biggest bombed out uh, stocks that have been there. And, and it was like that for over four years, it was under these conditions. But now from this point looking forward, you know, the re-rate has happened. The financials have been significantly cleared up. Um, it's trading on around 14, 15 times forward earnings, depending on who you ask. And the business to their to their point have diversified. It's 50% of their revenue does come from industries outside of oil and gas. So they've done a great job. You know, the capital has been much returned to this business in terms of the amount of debt they have. And the question I'd be asking is kind of what to from here. I'm not sure if Michael's seen this as well, but every small cap fund manager report I read, I think they own this stock. So it's been a great story. You know, I'd probably be leaning towards taking profits and selling. Um, but yeah, it has been a great case study for people who invest in cyclically poor businesses. Yeah, because as you say, taking a look at that share price, uh, just reflecting that that big turnaround, Michael. It was hard to get anyone excited about energy or oil a few years ago. Um, oil famously turned negative in the futures mm. market, um, so it was it was hard um, at that point for anyone involved in that space. Um, but MMA have done a wonderful job in you know getting the business back on the right direction they've got over 30 different ships uh, which are available at all different phases of the oil and gas exploration process uh, as touched upon utilization rates have increased significantly you know their cash conversions gone up the pricing that they're getting for their for their time and, and for access to their to their fleet has also increased allowing for a big pickup in EBITDA so at the moment momentum seems to be with the company and the, although the, the oil price has held up and been pretty resilient, it hasn't you know, boomed as much as many people have been expecting. Um, it, it's sort of quite a vexed commodity at the moment, oil. Some people are very, very optimistic, others pretty bearish. Uh, but one thing is for sure that CapEx around the world, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, has pulled back significantly when it comes to oil and gas. However, and demand is still remaining fairly strong. So. There are some that do argue that there's going to be a big supply deficit coming to market. OPEC, although they have been reducing their production targets, they've been struggling to meet those targets consistently. So it's an area that we kind of are interested in, given the big valuation discrepancy of many of the oil and energy related companies relative to the rest of the market. Uh, MMA, it looks very expensive given, it looks like it's run very, very hard given how low it came from. but. The business is backing it up with some very good numbers. So it's hard to get too pessimistic on the company. Um, and often when the momentum's there in the share price and momentum's there in the balance sheet, it's probably worth holding on um, until you start to see a change or, or a turn in, in the narrative and the information flow that comes out from the company. So I'm gonna go a hold on that basis. Yep, okay, fair enough then. Right on to the next one, and uh, well, here's another one. Perhaps it's been a favourite of small cap uh, fundies, Weebit Nano, and uh, it is was well, actually an Israeli-based uh, company, but uh, developer of advanced semiconductor memory technology, uh, and uh, well, it's, it's fairly detailed in terms of that technology. Uh, maybe get our experts to explain it, but uh, certainly services the Internet of Things and the like with devices, smartphones, robotics, autonomous vehicles, and AI, of course, the magic phrase. Um, has it benefited from that? Well, maybe not. In fact, its shares are down about 50% over the past 12 months. Michael? Yeah, it's one of these 
hot stocks there for mm. a while, um, trading on extreme multiples of, of book value uh, for a company which basically had no or zero revenue until very recently. Um, it is meant to have made you know, a quantum leap in the technology or advancements around um, semiconductors and the memory of those conductors and how quickly you know, and reliable that they could be used uh, and the amount of data storage, all these sort of buzzwords that were being thrown around there for a while. They were able also to operate in, I think they were doing tests there at one point, um, in sort of extreme heat environments. Um, but it's not a company I've ever followed too much, just given how much hype I felt was in the stock um, and just how extremely expensive it was. So um, unfortunately, I can't give you too much color around this business other than to say that it's definitely been a much loved and, and hyped area of the market, which from my opinion is yet to deliver much on the front of you know, real outcomes, real revenue, et cetera. So, so I've got to go no sell. Yep. Okay. All right. Daniel? Oh, it would have been funny if you said buy at the end there. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, look, similar comments here. It's, you know, I'm not sure if you can really say this word, but are these kind of the Australian versions of the meme stocks, Weebit and, and Brainchip as well? Look, we, we don't really know what's going on there from an underlying technology point of view. Yes, Australian companies can develop fantastic technology, but I'm just not sure what their kind of competitive advantage is. It's very hard to discern that. And still today at a $700 million market cap, you know, that I would say in somewhat the upside would be limited. Like I'm not sure what their revenue, what their profit kind of trajectory and estimates could be. Um, you know, I know they've got $70 million of cash at hand. They look like they're burning about $30 million annualized. So they likely need a raise within 12 months. Um, but look, these are the stories which we love to follow. We like to see the developments there. But do you want to be investing your money there at the moment? Now, I would probably say no from our point of view. It's clearly not the type of stock we look at. It's Stock Doctor. Yes, it has potentially upside. And it's a great theme. But yeah, look, it's very similar to Michael. You, you can't really invest here unless you have a good understanding of kind of the forward-looking fundamentals, which we don't. Yeah, it's just those, some of those tricky tech stocks. Uh, you talk about nanotechnology. It's difficult to understand, isn't it? Um, so no, would you, would you sell it then, uh, given how far it's come? Yeah, I'd sell it. Yep, okay. Gee, you guys continuing your neg- you're not your negative, you're realistic uh, <laughs> outlook at the moment, aren't you? All right, let's head into the resources space now. Adriatic Metals, picked by Katie, is a dual-listed silver and uh, zinc explorer uh, and with a project uh, with based in Bosnia-Herzegovina, in fact, in, uh, in Europe. Um, Daniel, what can you tell us about Adriatic? Well, I'm going to turn the tides here, Andrew. I'm, I'm going to go with a speculative buy right off the bat. So oh, we wow. are turning the tides. Yeah. Uh, no surprise, given you know that I do like my resource companies. But Adriatic, I've been following the story for probably around four or five years now. Fascinating story. Uh, it was a really large, high-grade polymetallic discovery in Bosnia. And you know, if you, if you say those words, everyone's probably running for the hills. Um, you know, exploration development company in Bosnia. But this company has just delivered year and year and they've actually now just head into production. So they're, they're producing first concentrate now. Um, the project did come a little bit above budget, you know, disruptions due to COVID, having to get the labor staff, you know, from external uh, countries given 
the, the low level of uh, internal labor in Bosnia as well was a bit of a challenge, but you know they, they keep finding ways to solve these issues. So the big risk here is the ramp up risk, um, which any company in, in development has from a resource point of view. And it really has been a killing field in the last few years for companies heading through development and production um, you know, one of the best examples is probably that Calidus in, in WA with their gold project, you know, just continuously not being able to ramp up um, production, grade, recoveries, etc. So that, that's the risk here. It's a big risk. Um, but, you know, I think you're getting compensated for that. This, the high grade discovery, the mine life has been extended. You know, and if we have a bit of an improvement in commodity prices, these guys could be probably printing close to $500 million in cash per annum. You know, the market cap at the moment is around a billion dollars, enterprise value a little bit higher, but clearly there's upside there. So uh, I think you are getting compensated for the risks, but of course it is speculative. So happy with that spec buy rating and, and keep the keep the you know, relative position sizing small. Yep. Okay. Well, that's one to get excited about. Um, but is Michael excited? Uh, I wasn't too familiar with this company yeah. either. Um, it's pretty much a pure play silver company from, from what I can understand. And just like there's and, a lot and of- And on that point, um, and I've spoken to a few analysts in that space seeing much more upside of silver than gold at this point, yeah. obviously given the industrial I, I feel as though people have been saying that for 10 years. <laughs> like there's always yeah. this community that loves silver, they're typically precious metal bugs and they always talk about the gold to silver ratio and, and these kind of things going back you know, centuries and millennium in some cases and trying to sort of talk up the underappreciated value of, of silver relative to gold. And that might be the case, but this particular mine has done all the right things, operating in a difficult jurisdiction, extending that mine life out from 10 to 18 years, I think is always, you know, a positive. The reality is they don't have an enormous amount of cash on their balance sheet relative to the cost of the project. That might start to correct itself as they bring on more and more production, but then there's also the risk that they might have to do a capital raising to keep things moving along. Um, but look, for, I don't know much about this company, so to take what I say with a grain of salt, it's a company that ultimately will succeed. Um, who, ultimately, the success will be determined by what happens with the silver price. Um, that's at a, a, a long-term sort of macro level, but obviously in the short term, they have that operational risk and there are often cost blowouts time delays, et cetera, that do happen with these big mining rollouts. But if they can continue to, to work around the issues like they've been doing, then they've shown themselves to be a resourceful board and there's a good chance they can pull it off, but probably too speculative for me at this stage. So mm. going to go a, a hold if you know the business well, yeah. but probably a sell <laughs> just because I don't know the company and I'd have to use the money elsewhere. I apologise to everyone. I haven't been the most helpful <laughs> today on some of these uh, stocks. Nonetheless, you provided a market there with you and, yes. uh, and Daniel. Uh, actually, Daniel, just to that point, obviously, are you, are you one of those where you see that uh, that upside to silver more so than, than gold at the moment? Yeah, look, uh, I've seen the same tweets. I'm sure Michael has seen that there is a real big mania out there, uh, silver bugs and the silver short squeeze, etc. Um, you know, JP Morgan of the silver crooks, etc. But you know, that's probably not my thesis for this company at the moment. They, they because the deposit is so high grade, uh, and it really is polymetallic. So I think it's probably around 30% of revenues is silver, and and the rest from zinc and lead uh, predominantly. Mm. So that they have got that diversification there, but. Their cost to reduce, you know, according to the studies, which you have to, you know, put a grain of salt on that because mining companies haven't been able to deliver costs relative to their studies is less than 
$10 an ounce. So there's sufficient margin, but it's all about that ramp up risk. That That's why the market isn't really re-rating this stock higher. And I would, you know, assume if they're successful, then the re-rate will come. That's, that's why it is speculative. Uh, and that's why you have to be careful with your position sizing, Andrew. Yep. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Uh, let's get into ag now with Cobram Estate Olives. Pick by Lee. It's a food and ag uh, company, uh, as the name suggests. It is an olive farming, milling, uh, marketing operations here and in the States as well with a portfolio of premium brands. First half there, pretty much in line with expectations, has gained market share domestically, at least uh, here in Australia. The question is, I guess, how it's going in the States and just how much investment in CapEx is required at this point. Michael. So it's a pretty like decent quality ag business with, with assets, as you say, in Australia and the United States. Australians are consuming more and more olive oil um, and Cobram Estate, I think, produces about over 70% of the oil that Australians are consuming. So they are you know, in, in a good area. Um, it's just whether or not they can meet the market and also meet the market at a reasonable price because like with all ag companies, there are the elements that they have to contend with, which really hit them and hurt them going back a couple of years. Conditions have improved as well. You've also got to understand with olive trees, there's the rotation cycle that every two years they produce. So it is quite a complex business. And on the face of it, the company does seem to be doing a pretty good job considering the challenging conditions that can confront the company from time to time. Uh, as you say, they continue to win you know, more and more market share in Australia. They pretty much dominate that market as we touched upon. And they're looking to crack the market in the US, um, which is, you know, a difficult market to crack for most products. So I'm happy to go a hold on this, just given again, the recent momentum in the update and the share price. But from a long-term basis, we tend to be pretty negative on ag businesses, just given a lot of the, the elements are out of their control. So happy to go hold at the moment, but long-term I'll be tempted to, to look elsewhere. Yeah, lots of variables given, uh, obviously dependent on the weather and, uh, and the land. Okay, Daniel? Yeah, it's a great discussion. And I think I've said before with you, Andrew, and we've, we've spoken about this one before, actually, that, you know, these businesses, they really shouldn't be listed because they have, you know, multi-year production harvests and sales periods. And we know that that can be very tricky in a listed market environment. You come out in a half and say, effectively, your, your financials are bombed out because you haven't really harvested and sold your product and the debt's building up for the working capital and the market will sell it down, your equity gets crunched. So they're very difficult businesses to be listed. One thing I like about Cobram is that, you know, they've always had a really significant ownership of land and infrastructure on their balance sheet, and that's carried a cost. Now, they've improved the disclosure around that recently, it appears, and given some, you know, external market valuations, and it is obviously a lot higher than what they carry at cost. So, if I was buying this business, it'd purely be for asset value. Um, but the last time we spoke, you know, it was certainly during that period where it wasn't selling as much product, the finances looked terrible. And I kind of said, look, that could be your, your, your thesis for a short-term trade. Uh, and based on the first half results, you know, that, that's played out. So what would I do from this point? I also noted that, you know, that they, the company was good and that they disclosed $7 million in related party loans to their directors, which is to help them fund options and tax liabilities. And they've effectively said, 
they're going to have to sell their shares now to fund the payback of that. So we're going to have directors selling out soon. You know, I probably wouldn't want to be there for that. Mm. Um, it's got nothing to do perhaps with the confidence of the business, but you know, still, these are the types of things we don't like to see in cyclical companies as market signals in general. So I think if you've traded that stock, you've done well, you get out your sell, but there are opportunities to play this stock. And the fact that it has that asset backing, I think is really important and actually unique relative to some of its other peers on, on the ASX. All right, so I'm taking that as a sell then from you. All right, let's uh, round out with Pepper Money. Uh, it is a non-bank lender in the mortgage and asset finance markets, uh, origination of prime residential mortgages, uh, commercial real estate loans, also in the uh, auto space as well as equipment finance. First half results are somewhat below estimates, weaker origination volumes there. Uh, I guess you also need to factor in where rates are going in at this point and also what's going on, particularly with those delinquencies given households are under pressure, those that are holding mortgages at the moment. Daniel. Yeah, look, I think the comments around Pepper are very similar to what we had around Liberty, Andrew. I mean, um, some interesting disclosures that they're yet to report for this period, but I had to look back at their, their previous report and um, they actually gave us some details around, you know, loss, loan loss to date since inception. They said it's around 0.4% of total originations, which doesn't sound like a lot, but total originations to date have been over $54 billion. So we've been through a period where we've had significant handouts, zero interest rates, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, are extremely good period for these types of companies. And they've, you know, still unfortunately lost over $200 million in equity. So the question is, you know, what happens now that we are in a more difficult kind of consumer environment? It hasn't been as bad as what everyone thinks, but this is what I was talking about with Liberty, that there isn't a lot of margin for risk in the equity of these businesses. And think about the loans that they're writing. You know, if you're a high quality lender, you're probably going to get the best rate and, and the best offer with the big four bank. So by nature, what they're competing in and the loans that they're writing typically are lower quality than what the big banks are able to do. And of course, they can't compete from a cost of capital point of view. So it's just too tough. Very similar sentiments to Liberty. Um, even though the stock has been is, you know, hurt significantly since 2021, I'd still sell it. There's just too much risk. Someone's going to make a lot of money. I'll repeat that, but it's not me. Okay, Michael. Yeah, it's uh, much the same as Liberty, although Pepper trades on a lot lower valuations than, than Liberty. I think it's about 0.6 times book value. Liberty is over one. Um, KKR, one of the biggest private equity companies in the world, owns 60%, I think, of Pepper Money. And there has been some talk that there are a lot of private equity companies looking around, trying to you know capitalize on what's been a beaten up market, considering the improvement that's forthcoming. However, many of these businesses like Pepper have had a pretty good rally of late. The problem that these companies have these non-bank lenders is they've got to borrow from the banks and typically those loans are only sort of five years or so. However, often they're you know, lending the money on 30-year you know, mortgage terms. So there's a bit of a mismatch sometimes there in the earnings outlook between the funding and then also the, the loans that they're writing and they're constantly having to go back to market and fund themselves. And there's an argument that Pepper is probably as extended as it can be on that borrowing front at the moment and therefore its mortgage growth trajectories not as attractive as some of the other firms. So from my standpoint, I think it's a, a very um, tough environment. You might get a private equity business who's being opportunistic and might you know, lob an offer for something like Pepper. You might miss out on that if you were to sell. But then again, you, you risk um, a retracement in the share price back to where it was in the, you know, the middle 
to later stages of last year. So I'm going to go a sell on Pepper Money just as I did with Liberty. Just as you did with the rest of the show. No, you did. It's earnings season. <laughs> it's a tough list. Yeah, I'm no, not as well no, researched as I normally would yeah, be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do my homework as much as I could have. But no, tough list today. No, fair enough too. Absolutely. That's why you're here. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's sum up the second half of the show then, beginning with uh, MMA Offshore. Um, Daniel, um, he's looking to take some profit there. Noting that the business really has turned around, that was also acknowledged by Michael. They've done a great job in doing that. Michael pointing out it does look somewhat expensive, but that's probably justified, so he's got a hold on it. Weebit Nano, uh, certainly one was a uh, one of the market darlings, particularly in the small cap space there, uh, very much uh, hyped. Um, Michael's got a sell on it, as does Daniel. Uh, also pointing out probably heading for a raise at this point too. Adriatic Metals in the, well, essentially in the silver space there. Daniel, a specky buyer, um, saying it keeps on delivering, heading into production. Uh, also both pointing out its extended mine life there. Uh, whereas Michael's saying too speculative at, uh, at this point. Cobram Estate Olives, a hold from Michael. Uh, does point out though it continues to dominate the market here in olive production. Um, Daniel pointing out it really shouldn't be listed given the space that it's operating in at the moment and he's got a sell on it. And finally there, Pepper Money, it's a double sell from both. All right, that is the show on this uh, Wednesday. Thank you to our guests. Michael, thanks for joining us from Daniel. Thanks for having me. (laughs) And Daniel from Stock Doctor, good to catch up again. Thanks, Andrew. And if it's any consolation, can we just suggest that uh, this morning's little stint, at least we gave a few buys there, didn't we, Andrew? Well, you're going to have to point everyone back to our website to see that conversation. Some of those stocks you have pointed out. Good good point you make right there. Thanks, Daniel. All right. Uh, any stocks you'd like us to cover, go to osbiz.co forward slash call picks, or you can write us on x at osbiz.tv. Thanks for watching.